Hello and welcome to Metaphorically Speaking with Delia Delore, the show that explores metaphors we use every day and their cultural impact. I hope you've all tried your best to keep safe. This week, my team and I have been exploring the expression, life's a marathon, not a sprint, and it's brought up all kinds of recollections. For me, I thought of a town in Texas, which is called Marathon. And when I used to go there, I'd just think, oh, I'm going to Marathon. And Marathon, of course, do you think of a walk or a run, something that takes a very long time to do if you're not fit? And it made me think of the history of the town. But when I thought of the quote, life's a marathon, not a sprint. I see the town marathon in a different way now, apart from the history of how long it took to build. The other thing that came to my mind when I think of life's a marathon, not a sprint, was that chocolate bar called Marathon. Do you remember that? I was talking to Sabina, one of our segment writers, and she didn't have a clue of what I was talking about. And I said, Marathon was the same bar that we now call Snickers. She didn't know, but I guess it just tells the difference in our ages, right? Whether it's your career, a relationship or even growing a garden life's a marathon not a sprint remains the same at heart it just means that great accomplishments take time like the poet Atticus said Monet grew his gardens before he painted them my guest today is Lee Pringle. He is the founder and artistic director of the Color of Music Festival which is a classical music orchestra of black musicians yes isn't that amazing Sometimes I have seen 72 black musicians performing together, like in Carnegie Hall in Pittsburgh, and it was just an amazing sight. And to see so many professional, classically trained black musicians was something that I will always remember. Lee discusses how this week's saying framed his career. But first, let's discover where this metaphor comes from. Life is a marathon, not a sprint, is a saying the internet attributes to Dr. Phil McGraw, and I'm surprised to learn this because I've been hearing this for a very long time. It's simple enough to understand that the quote implies that life should be long, unlike a 100-meter dash. The quote also suggests that life is a gradual struggle with highs and lows to face along the way. Marathons are hard, extremely hard. In fact, the first ever marathon runner, as legend tells it, dropped dead after completing this feat. In 490 BC, as the myth details, the Persians were waging war against the Greeks. When the Greeks arrived at Marathon, they quickly moved to block the Persian army from advancing further inland. As soon as they set up their camp, the Greeks realized they were at a serious disadvantage. Their army had no cavalry or skilled archers to match those in the Persian army, and they were outnumbered more than two to one. Looking to even the odds, the Athenians sent a runner to request reinforcements from Sparta. And great news, the Spartans agreed to send aid, but not right away. An important religious festival was ongoing at the time, and the Spartans couldn't interrupt the festival by going to war without breaking divine law. The Spartans may have taken war very seriously, but they were just as serious about their parties. Therefore, the Athenians couldn't expect Spartan reinforcements for another 10 days. His journey there and back 
covered 150 miles and took two days. Luckily, by the time he arrived back in Marathon, the Greeks had triumphed over the invaders despite the odds. Not quite as lucky, Pheidippides then had to run a 26-mile journey to Athens to break this important news. Upon arriving, he shouted, Nike, Nike, or victory, victory, and then expired on the spot. Now, this tale was big news for me. Can you imagine that? Someone running 26 miles, and then when they get there, they just drop dead? Even knowing this tale, we may think the word marathon simply denotes an excessive length of time. One commits to something. Maybe you marathoned a season or five of Game of Thrones when it came out. Cersei's walk of shame was hard to watch. Shame. Yes, that one. But it was nothing compared to running 26.2 miles. Imagine walking that kind of distance. Now imagine running it. Even though I walk a lot for exercise, I know I couldn't run it. It's a feat that roughly only 1% of the British population has achieved, which is also around the same percentage of those with doctorates. Completing this kind of physical exertion changes you, but achieving something that seems impossible also has real psychological benefits. Pushing yourself to the finish line proves you're capable of so much more than you ever believed. The motivation, resilience and discipline is truly awe-inspiring. Eliud Kipoj is the only person to complete a marathon in under two hours. The Kenyan athlete ran the distance in one hour, 59 minutes and 40 seconds back in 2019. That's an average pace of four minutes and 35 seconds per mile. Oh gosh, I can't imagine that. But he did it. Here's a clip of him finishing up the race. Farmer, who used to run two miles to school every day and back. He used to go to the nearest town on his bike to sell milk at the local market and now through hard work and discipline he's pointing come on he says Elliot Kipchoge has the hand of history on his shoulder he has less than 200 meters to go Elliot Kipchoge let's keep an eye on the clock into the final 20 seconds Elliot Kipchoge on his shoulder 140 140 for the unofficial time oh, Elliot, Elliot Kipchoge storms into the history books in Vienna. 1.59.40, the unofficial time. The first man to run a marathon in under two hours. One final lung-busting stride for Kipchoge. I don't know about you, but that gave me chills. Any seasoned runner will tell you that good resources are always helpful like a pair of trusty running shoes. It is an investment for sure, but one size definitely does not fit all. We all have a unique gait and running style, so finding the right kind of support is crucial. Next, preparation. To triumph over any kind of individual goal, we need some form of education or training. Not necessarily something formal, like school or university, but learning from others is important too. Intelligence isn't only acquired by reading books, but good knowledge of how people work, whether in business, as friends, or even as enemies, is important to navigating life. And I also think one of the key things is to listen. Listen without interrupting. 
Finally, it's important to remember that when doing any form of physical training, rest and recovery is a vital step. Your body only really sees the benefits of any form of exertion during this period. When you exercise, tiny ribs are created throughout your muscles. This may sound painful, but when you rest, these heal. And of course, that makes your muscles bigger and stronger. A healthy balance is key as one helps you appreciate the other. Relaxing, seeing friends, eating good food, reading a book recharges you for the work ahead. A creative person may call this inspiration and maybe a businessman may say it's networking. But either way, enjoying life is essential. Our guest today is an artist, musician, singer, and the founder of the Color of Music Festival. Lee Pringle's story is one of perseverance, discipline, and belief. His mission, which is to give a platform to classically trained musicians of African ancestry, is simply music to my ears, and hopefully to yours. I've been privileged to be part of the festival as they travel from one US state to the other, and I have met some wonderful, amazing musicians who I call Anyango and Roderick, they have studied, they have done so much that we just don't understand the level of perfection that black classical musicians go to in order to perfect their art. People, Lee Pringle and I are not strangers. In fact, people have often thought about the relationship that we have because we've worked so long and so much together that we seem to know what the other one is going to say and do. And it's, it's not just a work relationship, but it's a friendship that I, I hold very, very dear to my heart. So Lee, thank uh, you so much for being with us on our new show, Metaphorically Speaking. I am honored and you know how much I adore you and your wonderful husband. You all are just great people and uh, we have enjoyed having you in the Carolina colony, South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, when you guys were here. So I love your show, metaphorically speaking. So I'm excited to be on it. I know that you are going to be, I know one of the best guests that I have. I, I know that before <laughs> we even start, but I know you, but my listeners don't. So who is Lee Pringle? And what is the Color of Music Festival? Well, Lee Pringle is someone who was born and raised in the Low Country, the Gullah Geechee Corridor of South Carolina, about 40 miles west of Charleston. And I did what I guess you all would call in the UK primary school in a section of this region uh, up until 1981 went away to the military and then college. And then I spent 25 years in corporate America after eight years in the United States Navy. So Lee Pringle is an amalgamation of his parents, the community in which he was brought up in, which was truly a village, and someone who hopes that his friends, colleagues, and acquaintances will remember him as a very, very dear, dear friend. And the Color of Music Festival, tell us about that. The Color of Music Festival, like my life, you know, having origins here in uh, South Carolina, is a festival that I started to highlight the significance of Black contributions to the classical music genre. And our offerings range from vocal, the natural voice, 
to chamber Baroque to early classical timeframe, the masterwork series. We also do choral music. In addition to having a symposium topic at each festival and a literary contribution focused on something significant from the African diaspora. So the festival is based in Charleston, South Carolina with an affiliate office now in Nashville, Tennessee, which is where black music started on the continent of North America. Well, it all sounds really wonderful, especially you know those in the US maybe may have a better appreciation of what you're trying to do than those in the UK. But what I've learned from you is that although you are celebrating classical music, musicians uh, from the black culture, it primarily started with a black English European as opposed to a black American. Tell us a little about that. When I conceived the Color of Music Festival, it was as a result of spending two years in Toronto, Canada, where Chevalier de Saint-Georges, Joseph Boulogne is what most people may know him as, and he's been written about in Europe as the Black Noir or the Black Mozart. He was actually 11 years older than Mozart and was composing at the same time as Amadeus Mozart and Haydn. Uh, the difference is he was born to an enslaved African who was in Guadeloupe on a sugarcane plantation. <laughs> and at the age of 10, his father put him in all the aristocratic schools that a nobleman would uh, choose for their sons. Of course, men had different statuses than women back in the 1740s um, and 50s when he was in his primary years. We chose him because he is considered to be the grandfather of black classical music. Of course, his time frame was early to Baroque classical music, Haydn, Mozart. So most people just don't know that he even exists. And when they do, they're just fascinated. But for the sake of time, he is the person uh, that we probably use the most in marketing stimulus because most people have never seen a black aristocratic powdered wig, <laughs> 1750s guy, you know, who was a pretty, pretty bad. I mean, he was a, an enormous guy. So coming away from that a little, how does life is a marathon, not a sprint, reflect your work ethic? And what does this metaphor mean to you? It means so many things and you have limited time, but I'm going to condense it as quickly as I can for the uh, sake of your audience. Life as a marathon, not a sprint, is when we become adults, we are not necessarily aware of how the evolution of what will become our passion metamorphoses itself. And for me, as a teenager, while I was in the US Navy, and even in college, I was always one that was a leader. You know, I just, that's a natural trait for me. I, I, I would take on things. I've learned to be a good follower as I've gotten into my, pushing my late 50s. But life is a marathon because when you start on your journey, each chapter prepares you for the next. You just don't know it at the time. And so I've always had this sense of understanding that when I want something very much, even if I've worked hard, I've prepared, and that particular thing, it, something that I may want right away, if it does not come to fruition, I understand that it's all a part 
of the lifespan of my life. And that particular item, something that I may want at that time is not coming because it's gonna be further down while I'm doing this marathon called life. So I often say, and you and I have had so many private conversations about things that have gone awry and you know, crisis management, it just comes with presenting uh, organizations that I am, I am calm. I don't get frattled. I may get frustrated and having been a sailor, you know, I can get a potty mouth if I have to, but <laughs> generally I, I, I look at life as when one thing comes in front, an obstacle of some sort, you find another way to get around it and keep your eye on the finish line of the marathon. So for me, that's my metaphorically, you know, definition of life being a marathon, not a sprint. But how can you keep it together in the moment? Because I know that you have been faced with all different negative things. There's some backlashes, discrimination through creating and conducting an African-American orchestra. So how would you say that this kind of prepares you and pushes you to be successful? I think that um, even when the festival was conceived and deployed in 2013, I had a long-term midterm and, and uh, well, I should say a short-term midterm and long-term plan for the festival. Many people who came in my path on this marathon did not know that. So they were coming in at a juncture when they didn't understand what my long-term goals were for the festival. So when some of the obstacles, and you've named some of them and, and you've witnessed some of them, um, I take it as I have to meet the person who may be the person being an impediment at that time. I have to deal with them where they are and try to understand why they are responding and or behaving the way that they are in that moment. You know, there's an old saying here in the low country, you can say or do just about anything as long as you do it with good manners and good taste. And so unless someone is really doing something where I'm assaulted physically, the words, any kind of innuendo or, or, or gossip, those things I've always been repellent to because you know I'm a pretty self-confident kind of guy. And when I get my stride, I'm doing it based on a well-thought-out plan. Obviously, we all have to pivot sometimes, but I just, you know, I, I take it from there. Do you think, or I should say many of us think, that when people think of classical music, they typically think of a Caucasian orchestra. Have you come across that when you're trying to tell people about your orchestra? Absolutely. In fact, I have learned to preference when someone says, what do you do? <laughs> when I spent 25 years in the corporate world, it was very easy for me to say, I'm a territorial director, I'm a regional director for a financial services firm. But as an arts administrator, it's rare that here in America, people have someone who is at the head of the organization who looks like us. So I always have to say, I'm gonna tell you what I do, but you're probably gonna say, no way, that's not what you do. And so when I say I'm a CEO and artistic director of a festival orchestra organization, people are really shocked. They just don't think of black people 
in that role. And so it goes back to your original question of, you know, Chevalier de St. George, who, you know, he was a rarity at the time. Now there were probably others in his field. They just didn't have the type of career that was based in Paris to be admitted to the courts of, you know, the Parisian uh, culture of the time and to be such a Renaissance man on so many levels. So yeah, most people uh, respond like, oh, really? And then they think, you know, when I saw an orchestra, I never saw any black people in there. <laughs> and I go, there you go. That's why I exist. <laughs> mm. Where do your artists come from? They're global. As you know, we have one of our stars. Um, one of the things I'm very proud of at the Color Music Festival is that we um, like to have women equally represented in my organization. And the leader of our all-female chamber orchestra is actually from Germany, um, Bavaria. Uh, Bavaria. And, but she is based in Bogota right now. She's a professor at uh, one of the universities there. Her name is Anyango Yarbor Davenport. And she's probably my most prominent international star. But we have the Grimbrer Bar brothers who are based in Paris, who actually originate from Guadeloupe where Chevalier uh, was born. Um, we have folks from Canada, which is our closest uh, neighbor. Um, and, you know, we've had people from the Caribbean and, and just several different places. And because we have so many musicians from the New York metro uh, area, many of them have uh, connections to several islands in the Caribbean. You know what amazed me when I, not even when I listen to them, is after I've listened to them, which just blows me anyway, but when they start, you look them up and you just know them as Jackie and mm -hmm. all their names. Uh -huh. But you look them up, they're professors. Yeah. They've got titles to their names. Yeah, they exactly. have really studied to be the best that they can be. Yeah. You know? And they just they're just amazing. And I think that people don't stop to think about, you know, how educated our mm -hmm. people are in terms of classical music. You don't just take a violin and start mm -hmm. playing. You mm -hmm. have to it takes a practice. long time. Yeah. It takes a very long time, you know? Mm -hmm. And I yeah. think I need to I needed to say that because we take a lot of these things for granted and we just see, watch, listen, but we don't always think about what happens. what goes into the yeah, the moment when they come on stage. I often tell my uh, patron base and donors who have a respect for what we do but are really not aware of what goes into it. And I say to them the reason that we have our fees structured the way that they are is because six percent of my artists, have a PhD or DMA in their field. That's a lot of college here in the US. I mean, that's getting four years of an undergrad and doing another three years of additional uh, study uh, after a master's degree. So you're looking at about eight to nine years yes. of perfecting their craft. And the average person only see them when they come out on stage to perform. So it's a very good point that you just brought up. And you know, as you were saying that, since we're, we are talking to our UK uh, listeners, of course, we had a, a young man who played at... Ha oh, Sheku. 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 Sheku Kenna Mason. Yeah, so Sheku Kenna Mason uh, uh, and his sister uh, and the brother Brennan were actually at the festival in 2016. I know their father, uh, you know, I would say better than uh, the mother, but I've, I've talked to both of them on the phone 
but we were very lucky to host them as a trio, the Kenna Mason trio here in the United States before he became famous playing at, at Megan and Harry's wedding. So, um, you know, it just goes, go, just goes to show that if given the opportunity, there are so many other Kenna Mason families with that many children who are all classical artists. And, you know, I see them all the time on social media. I'm so proud of him. I mean, he's truly a global superstar now. And Asada, the, the oldest, she's the pianist, she is right there behind him, but you know he was the one that got the gig for Harry and Meghan's wedding, and Asada didn't. But yes, Sheku Kenna Mason. They made us proud across the world. Yeah. What was the first piece of music that you listened to that made you decide that yes, this is it? I want to follow my passion for classical music. And did your family support you when you decided that? Well, my family has always supported me. My mother, who's still with me. My dad is now deceased. As a young boy growing up, I could basically do anything that I conceived that I wanted to do. My parents, although they were blue collar working class people, they never told me and my brother no. I mean, the amount of instruments that they purchased, you know, many of which, of which you know, went by the wayside. I was percussion initially. My brother went uh, from guitar to saxophone and he kind of stick, stuck with that. Mm -hmm. um, the first music really for me uh, was the African-American spiritual, which is a form of, uh, of musical expression that has its origins from the enslaved people colonized here in the United States in the Carolina colony. And as I said earlier in the conversation, that all started in 1871 with the Fist Jubilee Singers in Nashville, Tennessee after emancipation. It was uh, eight of them, and they were all formerly enslaved people. But while they were uh, gaining notoriety, their, that form of expression, the spiritual, resonated even over to the UK because that group of singers even performed for Queen Victoria um, when, at their heyday. So the African-American spiritual would be the first piece of music, but because Classical music and the spiritual has so, so many parallels. I would say that the first piece that just really resonated with me as a uh, arts administrator was Johannes Brahms' um, The German Requiem. Uh, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about the, the areas of classical music, but his music to me always has such depth to it. You feel it. When you hear it, you can literally feel it. It's the way in which utilizes lower strings uh, and for his choral music, the alto voice, which I would think you would be an alto or contralto because I can hear it in the lilt of your voice. He composed choral music where the soprano and the tenors are not overpowering the altos. I, you know, for those who are big Brahms uh, fans, they will understand why he is my favorite. And I had the opportunity when I was about, um, I guess, 29 uh, to perform the German Requiem with Spoleto Festival USA's chorus uh, uh, when I sung uh, as a, a tenor in the Charleston Symphony Orchestra Chorus. So those are my two favorites, the spiritual and Brahms Requiem. So I think you've kind of answered my next question, which was, 
about who do you think is the best classical musician of all time and how so but now you can answer the bit well actually that, that <laughs> there's an answer to that okay, yeah. okay good so if it's different that's good how does your favorite musician compare with uh beethoven or wagner okay so uh beethoven to me probably was um, composing at a time when classical music was making its most significant transformation. Um, the people that came before him were during that Baroque to early classical period. And so the things that he introduced into classical music, including certain instruments and how massive the sound of an orchestra were, I would say put him at a higher level than Wagner. Now Wagner has unbelievable music, but everything he did, if you think about it, okay, and this is not, may not be politically correct, but his music was done in a way that the unbelievable travesty of the, the Hitler regime um, attached themselves to it. So the connotation for Wagner's work has all kinds of controversy, including anti-Semitic uh, anti uh, sentiments, um, but he composed for huge orchestras, orchestras that are really not affordable for the average symphonic philharmonic gathering of musicians. But you know, during the time of Hitler and, and that kind of regime that could provide you know, all the money that you could think of, well, you could compose for a 150 piece orchestra, but that's, that's just not the norm. I would say um, that Beethoven is the genius uh, of, of all. And, uh, you know, his, his effects on classical music have such far reaching, um, you know, tentacles that uh, I could go on and on about it, but I would say Beethoven hands down over Wagner. Okay, great. So coming back to your work and your performances, which one would you say has been the most memorable and why? I would say the most memorable performance was in 2013 when I was doing literally everything for the, for the festival because we had no money and this was just a good idea and I was trying to make it work was assembling 45 musicians and knowing that every aspect of the patron experience, my little being was totally responsible for it. Mm -hmm. And it was overwhelming. I, I got a little teary eyed and every now and then I will get a little misty when I sit in the audience and you joined me, although you want to do what you do for me as a as a um, global ambassador for the festival, you know, uh, having someone with me who I can say, God, wasn't that wonderful? And I've, I've had you there uh, uh, for me. Uh, it, is, it is something that I, I want more black men and women to experience because to conceive something and to see it displayed with all the accoutrements that you would have let's say at the BBC proms or, you know, someplace here in America, we've got 1700 orchestras here. That's a rarity 
for people of African ancestry to do that and to not apologize for the blackness in it, in it all. You know, that um, we are the original people, if you want to go back to uh, anthropology. And so we have a lot to be confident about now that we can chart our own paths and not deal with the affrontal oppression that we endured as a people, meaning all of us, those of us who have connections to the Caribbean and so forth, who were in the UK. Um, I think that that is something that I would love to see more young people get into, and that is arts administration, because unless we're in the executive wing, we will continue to see orchestras that are predominantly white, all the administrating, including the executive wing of white men in most cases, women are having some uh, some advances, but no black women. There are no black administrators in any orchestra in America, not one. There's, I think, three black uh, administrators, and I think I'm the third. So that tells you just how limiting it is yeah. for our culture. Now, we've spoken a lot about the musicians themselves, but what about the spectators, the people who come out to see them because I was very surprised when you were in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Hall to mm -hmm. see, I mean, it was, it was full house. It mm -hmm. was full house. And I mean, it brought us to tears. Uh, I just, the performance was just so amazing. Mm -hmm. I saw more Caucasian people than mm -hmm. I saw black people from any mm -hmm. sphere of the world. And it's like that, I think, for most of the performance. Yeah. Why is that the case? That's because we did not write the history books and we have been taught that classical music was not our music. And although we've had people from our ancestry studying classical music from the very origins of the music, when you have someone that had the power to promulgate their version of what classical music is, then that's what society and our children believe. So, I think that's what makes color of music so uh, unique. We don't shy away from the word black and nor do we shy away from all the deployed, um, uh, I guess you can say norms for putting on classical music. Um, you know, as I said earlier, if you come to one of our performances, it's the identical of what you would see at the Dallas Symphony or at the Houston Symphony. The only difference is all the people on the stage are black. Um, so I think that it's just one of those things that um, we have to cultivate audiences um, the way in which white institutions do. And as I said earlier, there's 1700 official League of American Orchestra organizations and the average has 60 to uh, 50 to 60 years of existence. So that means 50 to 60 years of a patron base. And if you've only been promoting to Caucasian people, that's going to be the general classical enlightened patron. There are Blacks sprinkled in there, but until there's more than the color of music and two other organizations that you're aware of, you know, we've got a long way to go to help our people understand that you have always had a place at the table. Mm. You know, we just need to bring it to you more. But since the Black Lives Matter movements and you know, um, support black businesses and so on. Has that affected you and the, the organization in any, in any way? Well, at the beginning, I call it social media advocacy. 
meaning, you know, Fortune 100 companies, 500 companies, you know, that have global reach made all kinds of statements of their in solidarity with black institutions. The fact of the matter is that has not affected, uh, helped us. Um, we still have the challenges of donor cultivation um, because we, we can't rely on the black population only because as I said earlier, we're, we're, we're cultivating the black audience. Um, there's a small percentage of black philanthropy that support our efforts, but the vast majority is forward thinking white liberals and conservatives who see that there is a need to change the face of classical music. So there might be some gains later, but as of now, that has not trickled down to black organizations. And I'm not speaking for all, I can only speak for me. Um, but if it was on a significant level, we would have been hearing about it because those foundations and, and private donors probably would want to get some you know, notoriety for it. And how have you had to adapt your practices with your orchestra during COVID? And how do you see your orchestra's future performances unfold? Well, we had to do what everybody uh, was forced to come to terms with, and that is accept the fact that we were not going to be able to do live performances for a while, probably until summer to early fall of 2021 at the earliest. So what we've done is we've put together some virtual uh, presentations. We've pulled a lot of our archives, and so people can go to our Facebook page or our YouTube or Vimeo accounts, and they can see some of those videos that we've produced to showcase audio, what we've done in the past. Uh, the other thing is planning for future events that would be live stream. In fact, we have live stream events coming up in February. And uh, by the time this is airing, uh, we will have all that marketing stimulus on our website and on social media. So for the foreseeable future, we'll be doing um, live stream, no audience performances, but where it makes sense and people can be socially distant and have a confirmed reserve seat, no walk-ups, we may eventually evolve into that as we get into um, spring, uh, where you can do things that are outside and it's in an environment where you know the risk is not as, as high. Okay, well, Lee, thank you so much for being here. And all you have omitted, the only thing I should say you have omitted to say is people can find you at colorofmusic.org. If you go into Google, put Color of Music Festival and everything that you need will be there. And of course, you know, you can count on me nearer the time to remind our listeners where <laughs> they can you. find you. Thank you so much. This was an honor and metaphorically speaking, mm -hmm. I'm so happy for your new show. Thank you, Lee. Thank you. This week's idiom, life is a marathon, not a sprint, reveals a lot about the way people subconsciously conceptualize life. We use language that depicts our actions like they're on a literal path, so often it may surprise you. I have some questions to ask you now. If you're around others, maybe you can answer in your mind. How many times can you remember describing yourself as being at a crossroads? How many times has a friend split from their partner because they were moving in different directions? 
What about when someone has passed away and their death is described as a departure or the end of a journey or that they've gone to a better place? These are no doubt expressions you've heard before, but what you may not know is their connection to the metaphor, life is a journey. Without realizing it, most of us employ this metaphor almost daily to talk about our lives. In these metaphors, we talk about ourselves as if we are travelers voyaging through life. We refer to our goals as metaphorical destinations and talk about the difficulties we encounter like they are literally bumps in the road. Once you realize this, you realize it's not even that subtle. Overcome and overpower every obstacle in my life. It's been a long, bumpy road. Seen a lot of things on my ride. Breaking down slowly. Times is overheating, running out of places to drive. I just keep moving down the road with nowhere to go. Not a care in my mind. Got the windows rolled down with my beard in the breeze. I'm only living every second of my life. Every second of my life. In Hosea's song, the progress he's made is spoken about as if a distance literally traveled. Even in your own life, can you think of a time that you've said to someone, just look at how far we've come? Or a time you've noted progress with metaphorical landmarks by saying something like, wow, we hit a real relationship milestone today, or something similar. This week's saying, life is a marathon, not a sprint, is no different in its contextualizing of life as a journey towards a metaphorical finish line. Here are some examples you may recognize that employ the metaphor, life is a journey. Yep. I said it before and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. For those of you who couldn't quite place that one, that was a line from the 80s cult classic Ferris Bueller's Day Off. There's always gonna be another mountain. I'm always gonna wanna make it move. Always gonna be an uphill battle. Sometimes I'm gonna have to And that was Miley Cyrus's The Climb, a track that metaphorically talks about life as an uphill journey with all its highs, lows and mountainous obstacles to overcome. But what really ties Miley's lyrics to this week's expression is the message that it's not about how fast you get somewhere, it's the process. You can think about it like chewing your food. It doesn't matter how fast you ingest something, it's still going to your stomach. So in a way, life is a marathon is a bit of a cautionary idiom, warning people not to be too hasty, something that Robin Williams very poetically puts in Dead Poet Society. What about carpe diem and sucking all the marrow out of life? Sucking the marrow out of life doesn't mean choking on the bone. See, there's a time for daring and there's a time for caution. And a wise man understands which is called for. So don't be greedy. Save a life. Meditate on your next move. And for goodness sake, chew your food. Here's another way to look at it that's a little bit different. It is no secret in the hospice industry that cancer patients tend to use metaphorical language to talk about their illness. 
In a truly fascinating study conducted by Lancaster University that studied the language used by patients who were nearing the end of their life, it was found that battle and journey metaphors were overwhelmingly common. You must listen to this clip. Eleanor Simino, who led the study, explains the implications of both conceptualizations. Having an illness such as cancer as a battle, the disease itself uh, ends up in the role of an enemy. And you're a fighter, or in some cases, if the doctors are fighting on your behalf, you may be the battlefield, which may not be a particularly positive way of thinking about it. Um, the metaphor emphasizes the need for strength, endurance, and maybe it has some aspect of competitiveness. Um, in contrast, if you look at, if you think about having cancer in terms of a journey, um, you may find it easier to conceptualize the illness as something that you live with and to see other people who have the same illness, for example, as companions on the journey. Um, so no metaphor is inherently good or bad, but different metaphors may be more or less appropriate for different people or even for the same person at different points in time. But what about those who do not necessarily view life and death in the same way? In Hinduism, reincarnation conceptualizes death as more as a comma than a full stop. Reincarnation is the belief that people exist in a cycle of life and death where a person dies and is reborn in a form that reflects the actions of their past life. But even with such a different approach to life and death, the rhetoric is still the same. In the Bhagavad Gita, one of the most famous Hindu texts, there is a famous line that has become a mantra to many. We're kept from our goal, not by obstacles, but by a clear path to a lesser goal. This has life is a marathon written all over it. If life were a sprint, we'd clearly choose the path with less obstacles. Otherwise, our speed would be impeded. The Gita's call for selfless action has inspired many over the years, including leader of the Indian independence movement Mahatma Gandhi, who referred to it as his spiritual dictionary. Can you imagine if he had decided to sprint down the clear path to a lesser goal? Although small goals are important, forgetting your ultimate goal will only hold you back, just like the artful Dodger said. The truth is that if we really want to find success and fulfillment in life, most of the time we are going to have to choose the harder path. So don't settle for less, guys. Strive hard and achieve your higher goals. You can do this. Thank you to our guests, Lee Pringle, and thank you for listening to Metaphorically Speaking with Delia Delore. This program was created by Delia Delore Productions with the original distribution by Colourful Radio. This episode was hosted by Delia Delore and segments written by Leora Mansell and Sabina Lokopra. The script was written by Leora Mansell with script supervisor Anna Webb. The show was produced by Delia Delore and Sam Colwood and edited by Reese Bridge. Social media and branding was conducted by Andre Kuljov and Odjua Akasvenyak.